Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from partisan talking points. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help frame policy debates and the shared challenges we face as a society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from local, municipal concerns to state and even national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland. And I'm Chris Chapp. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to discuss the state of the social media environment with a special focus on information, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. There are few institutions that permeate our lives as ubiquitously as social media, and the potential for misinformation is very real. From seemingly unsophisticated memes to sophisticated deep fakes generated from AI models. And the social media environment is rapidly changing. Just last week, Meta announced the launch of Threads, a direct competitor to Twitter. While the growth of Threads has been exceptional and meta has promised a more quote-unquote positive atmosphere than twitter there are big questions about its content moderation policies in addition the, the role of government in content moderation is also in a state of flux for example just last week a federal court issued a ruling instru- restricting the biden administration's ability to interact with social media companies in an effort to combat disinformation The case came up when administration officials attempted to pressure social media companies to take down posts they worried would lead to vaccine hesitancy. Several Republican attorneys general saw this as a First Amendment infringement, and just last week a federal judge agreed. To help break all this down and and really reflect on the psychology of misinformation more broadly, what we as citizens can do to inoculate ourselves against misinformation, we welcome Carleton political science professor Christina Farhart. Dr. Farhart earned her PhD in political science in 2017 from the University of Minnesota. She also holds a BA in political science and psychology and an MA in political science from Colorado State University and an MA in political science from the University of Minnesota. Prior to her graduate work at Minnesota, Dr. Farhart worked for the National Science Foundation in the Division of Social and Economic Sciences and the American Educational Research Association. Dr. Farhart, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Bruce and I are in studio in downtown Northfield, Minnesota this morning, and Dr. Farhart is joining us via Zoom from Minneapolis. Okay. Good morning. Um, may we call you Christina? Yes, you certainly may. Thank you for having me this morning. Absolutely. Welcome to the program. This is going to be fun. Uh, The first question is, we have a lot to unpack here. I mean, before getting into the meat of the interview, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in conspiracies and misinformation. After all, you started doing your research long before misinformation became a household term. Did you anticipate the current state of affairs, or are you shocked by it? Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting place to have my research be so normatively situated at the moment. Um, so, it, Chris, thank you for the introduction and kind of walking through the background. Um, I've always been interested in public opinion and political behavior. What leads different people to engage in politics, or what forms their their public opinions in particular ways? And so, um, when I started my PhD at the University of Minnesota, working with my dissertation advisor Joanne Miller, um, we were looking at a public policy polling poll, so a PPP poll, um, that had come out that was looking at some really interesting conspiracy theories along with uh, general political attitudes. And what was so unique, and this was back in early, early 2013, um, was really interesting about that poll is that it was showing, and we'll talk a little bit about Oliver and Wood here um, in a minute, but what was really interesting is that the proportions of folks who were endorsing these conspiracy theories, politically oriented. At the time, the 
uh, conspiracy of of the day was um, around the the birther conspiracies about whether or not Barack Obama had been born in the United States and whether he was Muslim. Um, but not just the politically oriented conspiracy theory of the day, but also these other conspiracy theories about the moon landing and assassination of JFK and um, lizard people living under our streets. <laughs> and so that the proportion of people who are actually endorsing these conspiracy theories was much, much higher than one would have thought, you know, general tinfoil hat wearing folks out in the ether of the 0.0001% of the population. Instead, we were seeing percentages anywhere from 15 to 20% of the population, upwards of 40 to 50, 60% of the population endorsing some of these conspiracies, which led us to unpack some of these questions to determine what were some of the motives behind this psychologically and politically. And so this, we launched this uh, area of research and a number of other scholars at that time were also inspired by similar uh, motives. And so we've been working on this for uh, just about a decade. Um, and we have a little over a decade's worth of, of data that we're still continuing to, to unpack. Um, yeah, and so I'm, I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with you all about what we found, what other scholars have found, some of the debates in the field. Yeah, those those percentages are are pretty stark and pretty shocking. So I I'm, I'm excited to to break down um, the psychology behind it. But maybe before we do so, uh, we could start with some some definitional issues. Um, uh, you know, for starters, what is a conspiracy theory? Because you just you just ran through a, a bunch of different examples that I think all qualify. But also, I've used the term uh, now mis and mm -hmm. disinformation, and I don't think we can really use these terms interchangeably as well. So, so maybe you could go through those terms for our listeners, just so that we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and and so there there is still a little bit of gray area on on how some of these definitions are constructed but typically um scholars have referred to and we'll start first without a conspiracy theory but and there are legitimate conspiracies out there as folks uh, criminally get charged for conspiracy against whatever it may be mm -hmm. um and so as we think about a conspiracy it's really the secret plot by two or more powerful actors um trying to conceal some sort of secret to seize power to undermine rights um or somehow alter institutions typically this looks like um trying to alter government institutions or intervene in some sort of uh, government process and so that's a, a conspiracy when we add in the theory part of it um, conspiracy theories then encompass some sort of allegation, right? And this is regardless of truth, right? So it could involve some sort of multiple coordinated and powerful actors, um, influential forces, uh, something about secret uh, secret plots to somehow usurp uh, political or economic power, again, trying to violate established rights, uh, hoard vital secrets, um, and again, often to involve some sort of uh, alteration to government institutions or government processes. And so the way that these are altered to, or uh, the way that these are, are used to violate democratic norms have also been, uh, I think, more in the, the general ether that we've been hearing about um, with these conspiracy theories as of late. Now, the way that those are different from misinformation and disinformation so misinformation, um, and this can also spill into the definitions of fake news, and we can get into that later, um, but misinformation really can be misunderstood um, because oftentimes we assume misinformation has some sort of nefarious intent to it. But in reality, misinformation really is just wrong or false information. It doesn't necessarily intend to mislead. So sometimes we just have bad facts or we have bad interpretations of those facts. And so what happens there um, and, and what is different from misinformation for disinformation, disinformation is much more like fake news, um, simulated document, uh, sorry, documentaries, uh, deep fakes. So fake videos that have been created um, and these are used to spread intentional misinformation, right? 
typically used to advance political goals or engage in some sort of political subversion. And so we typically see disinformation then actually coming from political elites or from governments, much more similarly to akin to uh, propaganda. And so as we tie all of these together, we end up using these interchangeably, but functionally they do actually operate a little bit differently. And uh, we can talk a little bit here. A lot of philosophers have actually talked about engaging in political theory or political theoretical belief actually may not be the worst thing. I'll, I'll take it down just for a second. Given that we want the general population, particularly our electorate, to be cynical of people in power, right? As a general check, we want people to be informed, we want people to be thoughtful about how they're engaging, thoughtful about their leaders. And so it may not be bad to question those who are in positions of power. However, what has become problematic is that misinformation and conspiracy theories have been weaponized. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more, and I'd, I'd love to share a little bit more about some of the work that other scholars have done and that some of my co-authors have done um, to look at what this looks like for shaping public opinion and the way that public opinion is now being treated as fact. And this reinterpretation of objective fact where folks may have the exact same fact but they're interpreting it fundamentally different. So, thank you. Wow, uh, you mentioned a little bit about political uh, issues behind misinformation and disinformation. Uh, it might be, you had a nice set of uh, examples. Uh, can, can you kind of identify a sample, of maybe one from the left and one from the right, so that people can see that it's not just, a, you know, it's more of a cross the border thing than it is? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And so I think the, the easiest comparison here, um, actually, and, and we may get into this, but um, we've been talking a lot about the conspiracy theories around um, election fraud or um, of election tampering or, or um, along those lines. And so um, while we have heard a lot from the political right um, over the last handful of years about um, election tampering and, and stop the steal, over the last handful of years, it's not a new conspiracy theory. Um, it's actually a conspiracy theory that has been used from all sorts of different political spectrums. Um, so even in 2004, um, well, 2000 as well, and 2004, um, there were accusations that uh, the Republicans had actually stolen the election um, through you know, a range of different tactics uh, through the conspiracies um, of uh, ballot tampering and um, machine tampering and, and all sorts of other things. Um, and so what we see here and what some of the, the more recent research has pointed to is that uh, these conspiracy theories are used from those who typically lose the election mm -hmm. because it's much easier to say, oh, my opposition cheated and that's why I lost rather than saying, oh, my side legitimately lost. And so typically um, we see, this is just one of those examples where we see this come up on, on both sides with a very similar conspiracy theory, but used in a very similar way. With our short attention spans, we sometimes forget that we heard all this stuff back in 2004. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good example. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. So today we're, that leads to my, my next question, because t today we're focusing on social media as a vector for conspiracies. But as you just alluded to, conspiracies have been around forever. Could you walk us through a little bit of the history before? And and I'm I'm curious, have we seen anything like the current information environment, disinformation environment uh, before, or is this is this just entirely new? Hmm. I think what is what is different at this moment is social media and access to the internet. We have access to information at our fingertips. At, all hours of the day in a different way than we ever have. And quickly, we don't have to wait for the, you know, dial up modem waiting to simply search something online. But now, you know, we can just hop on our phones. We can get that information literally with us at all times. However, historically, the use of misinformation or, uh, misleading facts or even propaganda and disinformation to some extent this has been a tactic 
particularly politically, I mean, we can go back to the Greco-Roman era um, mm. where we have some of this documented historically as well. And so um, that's not to say that we are all the way back in that same context because there are, there are some differences, but we are, as part of human nature, we want to win. We want to sway people to our way of thinking. And so using information, using uh, messaging that allows us to do that can be a very powerful tool. Um, one of the, the more prominent historical eras where we saw this peak um, was certainly during the 1950s and the Red Scare, certainly peaked through um, the McCarthy era. Mm -hmm. And so the development of um, anti-communism and the way that that was used to not only uh, dominate conversations in Congress, um, but also at a time where folks were very sensitive to the conversations and the threats, not only domestically, but internationally. And so in, in similar ways, we have seen that arise. So the, the big shifts aren't necessarily new, um, but again, what is certainly changed is, is our access to information and the way that these things develop so quickly and spread so quickly. Well, that, that lets me bring up my favorite story. I say that back in the days of the Revolutionary War, disinformation traveled at the speed of a drunken man on a horse, and he was only talking to one bar full of people at a time. And the Internet has just changed that, and you've, you commented on it nicely. So, Well, that, that reminds me of um, uh, a book that came out not too long ago called The Paradox of Democracy. It's by uh, Zach Gershberg and Sean Illing. And one thing that they argue is that democracies really struggle at moments of technological transition, the printing press, the radio, television. You mentioned the Red Scare, kind of right at the, the television era. Mm -hmm. And social media is the latest innovation here. Um, I'll, I'll read a quote from their argument, and, and, and I'm just curious if, if you agree. Um, when new forms of communication arrive, they often bolster the practices of democratic politics, but the more accessible the media of a society, the more susceptible that society is to demagoguery, distraction, and spectacle. Mm -hmm. And and I find myself kind of predisposed to agree here. I'm wondering I'm wondering what your take on that is. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you and, and with the authors on this. And even just reflecting back, Bruce mentioned the Revolutionary War and the advent of the printing press and the way in which that was used to mm -hmm. share information um, among the colonists. And really the advent of the printing press changed the dimensions of the Revolutionary War. Um, and so as we think about the advent of social media and the expansion of the internet, and not only the expansion of the internet, but the expansion of access to the internet, um, that it's now so easy to access. Um, I, I think this has certainly become an, a huge, huge issue. Um, and that misinformation, despite it being around for a very long time, um, when we do end up with these new spaces of communication or new spaces of, of technology, um, it can, on one hand, and, and was certainly um, advocated for, that the advent of the internet and the use of social media was going to be a way for people to come together, to build networks, to not necessarily have to be in physical presence to uh, to talk with and, and join with and, and build community. And to some extent, some of that is still true. But we now are starting to see the, the more negative sides mm -hmm. of what does social media look like? Uh, can we still treat social media like a public good? Mm -hmm. um, what does this mean for regulation of social media? And, and, and Bruce mentioned, um, you know, what this might look like. Uh, and, and I'd like to talk about the, the tensions between regulation and First Amendment protections and the tension between civil liberties and civil rights there, um, because it, it is a very, very real tension and there is not an easy solution. Um, and so I don't know if it's necessarily we're in more dangerous times but we might be in times where we need to be more critical consumers of, of the information and more critical of the the types of information we interact with. So the, the heart of your research really is that the psychology of conspiratorial belief. And um, we've heard, I used to hear that street protesting as an activity was addictive and people 
preferred to be out in the street protesting. They didn't really care what the issue was. Is there a similar thing that makes conspiracy theories and misinformation in general so attractive to people? There is a dimension of, of conspiracy theories. And so what happens with us being social human beings? We are, we are social animals. And so that also means that we want to make sense of the world around us our world and especially as information and our information environments become more complex we want to make sense of that complex world and so what happens with belief in misinformation or in conspiracy theories especially if they align with our particular perspectives is that um, if we engage with those it can help us create stability and understanding the world around us it can be really easy to latch on to an explanation simply because it's an explanation, not because it's a good explanation, mm -hmm. but because it gives us an explanation and we can set the uncertainty or the unknown aside. The other piece is that we want to manage any type of threat. So if some sort of information or an event threatens us, whether it's our physical safety or even just a belief, we want to deal with that threat. Um, we also want to grapple with that uncertainty and anxiety. We are really bad as human beings at dealing with uncertainty and anxiety. And so one of the outlets that we have, again, is to latch on to these explanations that reinforce our prior perspectives. And importantly, with that latter piece of reinforcing our prior perspectives, is that we want to protect our worldviews, whether that worldview mm -hmm. is a religious worldview or an ideological worldview or a worldview that is tied to a deeply held partisan belief or any other strong identity that we hold. We want to have beliefs and engage in behaviors that protects that worldview because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel protected. It makes us feel better about the world around us. Okay. So I'm going to do a little explanation of what the word correlates means. During the coverage of COVID, we all started learning very much about how things were contributory to your your bad outcomes so we knew that being overweight or having diabetes those are correlates is that right are there any correlates that help predict a tendency to believe in misinformation and who is most vulnerable yes and i think that the the piece on on vulnerability is is a really nice way to frame this because one we are all vulnerable to this it's, we are all susceptible but there are some folks who do have a greater tendency to seek out these types of information because they serve such uh, self-affirming perspectives. So on one hand, folks who have experienced more, um, have, have experienced situations that would lead them to feel powerless, for them to feel any type of um, deep, uh, let's say, um, if they feel underrepresented or mm -hmm. they feel ignored, if they feel um, as if the system is just completely leaving them by the wayside, then they might be more likely to engage in conspiracy theories that question um, those question that system or question the government institutions. Um, other layers of that might be there's a whole area of work that points to some predispositions or some personality types that might be more likely to engage in conspiracy belief itself. And so some folks just might be, it's called an, a monological conspiratorial belief system. And so this belief system might lead folks to be more interested or more open to all sorts of conspiratorial perspectives, um, not just those that reinforce their their personal perspectives. And so those are two of the, the bigger correlates. There are a whole number of them, including uh, folks who have uh, kind of belief in anti-intellectualism. So with uh, questions around um, that elites and, and government institutions uh, have not been uh, serving or are not doing a good job at protecting the people. Um, we certainly saw dimensions of trust, not only trust in government, but trust in banks, trust in scientists also serve 
um, as correlates with these dimensions of engaging in misinformation. And certainly you mentioned COVID um, for folks who were um, in spaces where they just felt as if they didn't trust doctors, they didn't trust the the system, um, they were less likely to engage in uh, vaccine um, their, uh, in vaccine uptake um, and were less likely to engage in other types of protective behavior like wearing masks. Right. I, I, at the Braver Angels Convention, we had a session on COVID and it was titled a, uh, An Elitist and a Deplorable Walk into a Bar. And it was kind of a humorous lead in to a very serious mm-hmm. subject and we were trying to keep it a little bit light. So anyway. Well, yeah. it, it's interesting that you mentioned trust, too, because when we when we look at institutions in general, trust in all sorts of institutions, be they scientific institutions, law enforcement, religion, I hate to say yes. it, college professors, um, yes. you know, trust in all sorts of institutions is down. And so you can see how mm-hmm. people's anxieties and, and fears, as, as you mentioned, these these sort of, mm-hmm. you know, epistemological or, or really basic, like fundamental uh, drives that that fuel the need for a conspiracy. You can see how how that we'd be even more susceptible in in today's world. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 curious. Yeah. We we've talked a little bit now. Bruce asked about the you know in political psychology we'd say the message recipient, right? Characteristics of people that make them more vulnerable. But I'm curious yeah. about the nature of the conspiracy theory itself. Are there elements? Let's say I want to write a good conspiracy theory. Um, are there elements that make these messages more effective uh, than, than others? There are certainly a, a couple of, of pieces that make them uh, more, we'll say, more viral than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so even going all the way back to some of the political rumors work by Alport and Postman in the 1940s, um, post-World War II, there are dimensions about making these uh, conspiracy theories social that can allow them to be picked up much more quickly than uh, other types of of, um, misinformation or conspiracy theories. And so the tension there has to do with how important the topic is. And what's interesting is they show the more ambivalent, so this this is tricky, but how ambivalent the explanation is, the more likely it is to get spread as a rumor. And part of that is because, and this is when we look at conspiracy theories, part of the power with conspiracy theories is a lack of evidence can actually be used as evidence in support of the conspiracy theory. And so that can make it really tricky about that. There are other dimensions of of conspiracy theories that allow them to to gain widespread acceptance. Um, One of the, so some scholars have shown that um, for folks who live very close to situations that have experienced either terrorist attacks or natural disasters, they're much more likely to engage in um, conspiracy belief acceptance around those types of events, simply to grapple with the events that are very close to them. So, for example, folks who are very close to the Fukushima um, nuclear uh, spill um goodness, handful of year, years ago now, um, 20, I think that was 2012, 2011, 2012, um, that, that, that folks who were very close um, were much more likely to believe in, in conspiracy theories about the failures um, at the nuclear power plant. Um, additionally, for folks who lived very close to uh, ground zero um, for the attacks for 9-11, they were much more likely to engage in these types of conspiracy theories um, to explain the events because it was so close to them than the folks who lived further and further out. So there, there are some dimensions of this. And I, there's also another, a last piece about how, how important the issue or the event is. And that, of course, amplifies um, the attention that people are, playing, are paying to the explanations, whether they're official government accounts or um, if they are uh, less official um, I don't like using the word fringe, um, but less official accounts of, or explanations. I, I wanted to just real quick circle back to what you said about ambivalence because it's so interesting. So if I mm-hmm. were promoting a theory about the, the lizard people, let's say, mm-hmm. I might go ahead and say that, you know what, 
we don't have direct photographic evidence, but the only reason we don't is because there's a cabal of leaders who have conspired to keep that evidence from us. And so the mm -hmm. lack of, is that what you're saying? The lack of evidence yeah. then will reinforce, uh, will strengthen my argument that the lizard people are in fact a real problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because it amplifies that uncertainty Interesting. Um, and the lack of clarity and reinforces the dimension that there might be a conspiracy involvement or a cover up of that information. Um, it's really interesting, just uh, yesterday and then a handful of years ago, the government actually released uh, a whole bunch of, or the Pentagon released a whole bunch of documents um, about uh, UFOs and the tension between, mm. you know, are they, these are just unidentified flying objects. And then the, the connotation and the association with, you know, is there some form of alien life form there or not? And, and it looks like they're gonna have to declassify a whole nother set um, of documents as well, um, given some pending uh, bipartisan legislation um, that's coming through Congress as well. Yeah. In, in the movie, The Terminator, Sarah Connor's telling this bizarre story and the psychologist says it's the perfect conspiracy because it's unprovable. And I think that's <laughs> what, what Chris just alluded to as well. One of the things that I know we run into is that really smart people are the worst because they can fill in the holes in oh, the... Yes. <laughs> But given that, uh, some conspiracies border on the plausible because they kind of have a kernel of truth. Um, <laughs> others seem to be laughable, not to make light of the issue, serious issue, but do you have a favorite conspiracy, something that's seemingly defied plausibility? Oh, goodness. I have, I have a couple of them. Um, so to the, to the first comment, what's really interesting is there, and there's a little bit of a debate in the literature as to, how knowledge, um, particularly political knowledge, plays a role in the endorsement of these conspiracy theories. And um, some of my, my co-authored work actually does point to this, that folks who um, actually are the most knowledgeable are the ones who are the most susceptible to these types of conspiracy theories, particularly those uh, that are reinforcing to their worldview. And it's because of a theory called motivated reasoning that I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, in the show. But essentially what it is, is we, again, want to protect our worldviews. And so having that toolbox to know, if you're politically knowledgeable, how those conspiracy theories are going to be tied to bolstering that worldview, they're going to be more likely to engage in that endorsement. Now, as far as favorite political uh, or favorite uh, conspiracy theories, um, one of the papers that I have my students do in my uh, misinformation class is that they have to create a debunking plan for their favorite conspiracy theory based on the literature that we're reading in class. And uh, there have been, oftentimes they stick with more mainstream stuff. So we see stuff on on QAnon and, and Pizzagate, um, the Great Replacement Theory and, and all of those pieces. I think the wildest one, the least plausible and, and most wild, and this is uh, hearkening to something like the the books that came back a handful of years ago, um, Abe Lincoln, Van, Van, Vampire Hunter, um, <laughs> is that uh, Queen Elizabeth had lived so long um, because she was actually a cannibal and had a, a taste for infants in particular. Oh. So as far as wild and just <laughs> bizarre conspiracies, there are conspiracy theories. Um, there are there are a number of them out there that are just mind boggling of how did someone come up with why did someone come up with this? Um, the other one I think that that just cracks me up is the birds aren't real conspiracy theory. And there's some <laughs> debate as to whether or not it started as a joke um, or as a legitimate conspiracy theory. Um, if you haven't looked at this, Google it. It's hilarious. Um, or, or not for folks who, who are concerned with it, um, that all of our birds have been replaced by uh, automatons, basically, um, for uh, for monitoring and, and observing um, our behavior. Oh, brother. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple <laughs> movies that used uh, robot birds as the viewing device, so I, I'm not surprised. I can go right to Hollywood to get video of exactly what you're talking about then. Yep. So... Yeah. <laughs> It's you're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. 
I'm your host, Bruce Moreland, and my co-host is Chris Chapp. And our guest today is Dr. Christina Farnhart from Carleton College. So in this segment, we want to turn to some specific debates that come up in misinformation research, conspiracy theory research. One of the big questions revolves around partisanship. It's pretty common to hear pundits claim conspiracy theories are most prevalent or are most problematic on the political right. Um, and this is an active debate in political science right now, and I know it's a, a view you have argued against, uh, Christina. Um, before getting into your own perspective, though, maybe you could walk us through what's often called the partisan asymmetry argument, this idea that conspiracies are, are really a, just a problem for, for the, the right side of the aisle, and, and maybe start with, with, with that argument, and then we'll hear your response to that. Yeah, and thank you for bringing this up, Chris, because I think this is an important debate for us to, to discuss. And it is very much a, a debate. Um, and there are folks who have published uh, really great peer-reviewed scholarship um, on multiple dimensions of, of this discussion. And so um, uh, one of the, the primary folks on, um, the, and there's, there's a range of, of folks who have looked at the way in which um, folks on the political right, uh, differences that are uh, in the brain, so the brain structures um, are actually different. Um, and there is there is some evidence that that may be the case. Whether or not that serves a, a robust enough effect um, to say that those on the political right just do this to a much greater extent than those on the political left um, is a question I, I don't think has has been fully answered. Uh, there's another dimension uh, that those on the political right may be more epistemologically, and I know that's a, a funky word, but um, are, are more epistemologically uh likely to engage in conspiracy theories um, that is tied not only independently from political ideology, but also tied to political ideology. And so when we look at big conspiracy theories of, of the day, um, certainly around uh, vaccine misinformation, um, misinformation and, and conspiracy theories around uh, climate change um, and the differences between climate change and global warming on those perspectives we can get into. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds yet, but also dimensions about voter fraud. And so part of the challenge with these dimensions or these conversations is that there is also the nature of political context. And so I don't want to jump forward too quickly, but um, there's also a dimension of context that we have been studying conspiracy belief and misinformation at a time when folks who are more sensitive to the types of conspiracy theories and misinformation in our inter in our information environment have been at a premium and so i can i can explain that a little bit further um and and chris you you also teach some of this in, in your classes if there were other pieces that that you could think of to add to this as well well, let's let's hear your your maybe maybe break down what you just alluded to um, a little bit more, so we can hear sort of the argument against the 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 partisan asymmetry claim. Yeah, so there, depending on the way that you look at the partisan asymmetry, there could be a dimension of asymmetry that happens when you're looking at specific types of conspiracy theories at particular moments there may be a can, an asymmetry in that Democrats are going to be less likely to believe that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. Republicans may be more likely to believe that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. There is going to be, based on the content of that conspiracy theory, there will be a partisan asymmetry on that specific conspiracy theory. However, fundamentally, overall, there isn't necessarily a dimension of uh, asymmetry in that. If we look at the types of information environments or information when we've done our data collection, there's a theory called conspiracy theories are for political losers. Mm -hmm. So let's place that in context. If we look at the times when we have collected data, the peak of investigation around misinformation and conspiracy theories was at the height of the 2012 presidential election. And then we moved into not only 2012 and the rest, the 
second term of the Obama administration. Then we move into the Trump administration. And then the um, Republican Party with the Trump administration and the Trump uh, campaign losing in 2020. So across this time period, we see a more acute uh, context where those on the political right may feel as if they are on the actual losing side of politics. And so what happens is when you're on the losing side of politics, we tend to not only endorse in conspiracy theories, but also maybe more likely to create conspiracy theories that make our political opposition look bad in order to cope with feeling as if we're on the losing side of politics. So the, and the challenge with that, oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Well, I was just going to clarify for the listeners. So the argument is if, if 2024 uh, Democrats lose big and that continues through 2026, 2028, you're going to really see the, the shoe on the other foot all of a sudden. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we actually do see this to some extent in 2016 um, in our own data. Um, and, and we were able to, to publish with some of this as well, is that in 2016, even shortly Right after the election, while Barack Obama is still in the presidency, but um, Donald Trump wins the election, we see this asymmetry shift. It flips. And there, um, those on the political right become less conspiratorial, and those on the political left become much more conspiratorial. Again, that feeling of being on that losing side of politics can have a really powerful effect. Now, some of those effects in 2016 and 2017 started to dissipate simply because of the uniqueness of the the Trump administration um, and of the era during the Trump administration. Um, Because any administration that's going to go through um, multiple uh, accusations, investigations to impeachments, um, there's no way to not feel as um, you're on the losing side of politics from there. And so it's there is that tension there between um, being on the losing side of politics, the content that we're looking at, and the specific conspiracy theories. Right. What we'll also say um, is that our, our, our data, again, we have data for, for a little over a decade, um, is this difference between content-specific conspiracy theories, so those that are about specific topics, versus something like a conspiratorial predisposition or something mm-hmm. that someone has a, a tendency or more of a personality that that leads them to believe in, in conspiracy, conspiracy theories to a greater extent. Those who have a, a personality that's much more um, engaged in conspiratorial predispositions, they uh, also, there tends to not be a big difference between those on the political right and the political left. Okay, so I have a quick question for you following up on that. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about partisan asymmetry in terms of quantities, but is there a mm-hmm. qualitative difference between the way the uh, the bad actors on each side are using conspiracy theories to manipulate the voters, or are they just both sides doing the same things with just different guns? That's a, a really interesting question. I, I think that it is it's hard to generalize completely. Um, and we have seen the way that, that conspiracy theories and misinformation have been weaponized, not only in the United States, but globally um, for political mobilization. Um, and to some extent, some of this, uh, the way in which um, information gets labeled as a conspiracy theory can very quickly be used as a tactic to delegitimize a group's concerns. Um, but on the flip side, the way that we have seen, and I, I think the dimension that we could point to here, the, the actions around January 6th, um, that's that's a, a challenging uh, event for us to break down because there, there was mobilization and there were, um, there were uh, armed actors who did take physical action against a government institution. And so it's that's just our, our one um, instance in current U.S. history of that specific dimension. Um, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds of, of the separation between political voice and being able to peacefully protest versus rioters and those who engage in, in violence. Um, and so I, I think there there are some really challenging dimensions, but we have certainly seen an increase in uh, attitudes for those who are engaging in greater conspiratorial endorsement. There also 
tracking with um, reductions in support for democratic norms, um, increased support for violence against the government. Um, and there's a, a new measure called Need for Chaos that there are some folks who, regardless of what political identity they hold, they just want to engage in chaos. And there's a, a dimension of kind of burn it all down um, that that also functions behind this. And so I, I think it's it's a, a developing conversation and an issue that that I think needs much, much more research. One other conversation that's gotten a lot of attention is the conspiracy theories surrounding COVID and yeah. vaccine development. Um, uh, where is this COVID misinformation coming from? I think you've referred to this as an infodemic. That's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, yeah does this I, yeah. misinformation have sort of public health consequences or? Yeah, and I'm 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 also interested to to hear some some thoughts that that you all have. Um, and so the the first piece is that this is our our active information environment. We have all been living through the the um, pandemic as it has as the COVID pandemic has now shifted to an endemic stage, um, and challenges with getting folks to uh, engage in vaccines or other types of uh, public health safety measures that. Um, it, for I think a lot of folks came very much out of the blue. And so going back to this dimension of trust, uh, that was a, a huge factor and, and I think still is um, that's preventing folks from engaging in uh, continued vaccine uptake, um, being much more skeptical to engage in the vaccines, more skeptical to engage in boosters. Um, I know I've, I've had conversations like this around, um, you know, with, with my own family. Mm. Um, and part of the challenge at the beginning of the pandemic um, was just we had a lot of mixture of information um, from official sources, um, not only the, the Trump administration, but from CDC, from FDA, um, and even from hospitals, because it was a continuing, evolving, developing issue. And so for, for folks who were like, just tell me what to do, tell me to be safe, how concerned should I be? We go back to that part where we do not do well with spaces of uncertainty absolutely the development of misinformation and conspiracy theories around covid it was just this perfect storm um and so a, a number of scholars have used this phrase but it was a perfect storm of uncertainty and anxiety questions and threats around our personal safety um and and dimensions of just unbelievable uncertainty at the time that was also peak political debate in our country going into a presidential election. And so it was it was just this perfect storm for the, the misinformation and the conspiracy theories to come to a head that did have major public health consequences. And they ran into um, these this misinformation and the conspiracy theories ran into other dimensions of, of public health consequences that were then built into our systems and our institutions, questions about um, freedom of expression and protection, tensions between civil liberties and civil rights of, okay, I'm being asked to wear a mask and stay out of public spaces, but how does that infringe on my freedom of, you know, what I put on my body and, and what spaces I am going to be in. And then on the flip side of, I want to be in these spaces, I want to be protected from someone else who might be a threat to my own personal safety. And so we have these really clear tensions um, that is, I think, just a, a, a small dimension of the broader conversations about these these tensions on, on misinformation and conspiracy theories around regulation and, and First Amendment protections. I have to tell you a quick story. I had a friend who said that she was able to recycle her My Body, My Choice to use it for anti-masking, even though mm -hmm. she'd originally bought it for to be pro-choice on the abortion issue. So that, yeah. I, and I like a number this. of folks did. Yeah, the psychology of that mm -hmm. is really something. Um, I'm often mm -hmm. amazed at how quickly the nation's top scientists developed a COVID vaccine, and the story mm -hmm. of that is, is a really interesting story. But it seems while we were really good at fighting a virus and really bad at fighting misinformation at that yes. 
at that seminar, one of the, the, the elitist and the deplorable, the elitist was uh, the former director of the National Institute of Health. And he, okay. he, he recognized and laid out some places where miscommunicate, not mis- uh, misinformation, but more the inability to communicate, which is a big problem for technical people sometimes, uh, really left an opening that you could drive a disinformation conspiracy theory truck through. Um, are policymakers listening to you, the social scientists, who should be the ones who can explain how to convert from data to policy? Or are they kind of, you know, what, what, how are they handling that? I think that's getting better. Um, but also scientists, uh, political, social, um, and and natural scientists who are, are developing the vaccines themselves, um, we're often not trained in how to communicate the results of our work to Mm -hmm. policymakers, to the general population. And so oftentimes we run into a disconnect. Um, Additionally, trying to fight misinformation is a challenging, challenging battle um, because oftentimes tactics to simply just correct the misinformation causes a backlash effect which ends up leading folks to more deeply entrench their prior misinformed or um, prior conspiratorial beliefs, they just get them, they just end up doubling down on them rather than correcting them. And so it's a, it's a really challenging space for us to, to navigate. But happily, um, over the last uh, five years or so, there has been a much larger uptake in scholars moving over to public health. Um, and scholars who do political communication work, uh, engaging in, in testing these this messaging and what does it look like to use really simple, clear infographics as, a, as opposed to having someone sit down and explain something to you. Um, and so simplicity and uh, images can, can really help with communicating and, and correcting misinformation. And um, there are also some dimensions of pre-bunking trying to get good information out there to a greater extent before misinformation and, and conspiracy theories come a knocking. Yes, I, I have to real quick mention, I, are you aware of the Alan Alda Institute on Science Communication? Yeah, I've got a friend. I am, who, and I love all of the videos that he has put together. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So we're working on it. You're listening yes. to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Chris Chapp, and my co-host is Bruce Moreland. Our guest today is Dr. Christina Farhart from Carleton College. We, you mentioned pre-bunking in your last answer, and we want to spend the closing segment of the show thinking about policy solutions to all the problems that you've described here. And we can do so at multiple levels of analysis, starting with broad policy-based solutions and moving to the, the small things that we all as individuals can do. So, so let's start big picture here. We live in a country with extremely broad protections for all types of speech, uh, and especially political expression. Does the government have any sort of policy levers it can pull to fight back against disinformation and conspiracy theories? Or are we really just relying on best practices from social media companies to sort of police themselves? Oh, that is such a phenomenal question and such an incredibly difficult one to answer. Um, part of the the challenge here is whether or not we view social media and the internet as a public good and whether it should be or should be protected or um, regulated, cleaned, so to speak, in similar ways that we think about like clean air and clean water. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a challenge. And, and there aren't simple answers here. Um, we have seen Congress pull in, um, you know, owners of, of social media companies. But at the end of the day, most of these companies are, are publicly traded companies. They're companies. They are private actors, um, not government actors. And so we, we do have a challenge between um, protections of, of free speech and allowing folks to engage in sharing their perspectives on these social media platforms. However, we don't necessarily directly pay into for membership into these spaces. So we pay with our information. That's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of policy levers, what does this look like in terms of education? 
there's another layer of and and a challenging one at that and that states have a, a range of education policies as well if we're talking about how do we help our our younger generations become better users of information part of that's going to be how do we teach them to be more critical consumers of information how do we teach them to be more wary of websites and social media posts that are bad information and it's not a simple solution uh, especially with a, a lot of states changing the types of, of um, information that they're going to be teaching and so that's it's one lever from from a policy perspective that could be pulled um, but again it's not a simple solution it's a very complex and, and very challenging and debatable solution yeah and it seems like you know the the fruits of that labor you know the the, the result of a good education policy it's going to be 20 years before we actually right. see the, you know, how effective that was or wasn't. So it, it can become uh, a really, a really challenging thing. I've seen some folks, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of Renee DeRest at the Stanford uh, Internet mm-hmm. Observatory as one person, um, argue that any real action from social media companies will probably be driven by other countries and bodies like the EU that don't have the same sort of First Amendment protections that we have in the United States. So, so the European Union might... Um, make some mandates or, or, or impose some regulations yeah. on, on Meta, and then they'll right. change their whole company. Um, do, you, uh, do you agree with this take? Do you think that maybe other countries might, be, might, might lead the charge here? It's, it's certainly one of the avenues where we would see where those regulations and how those regulations might operate. Um, and, and as you mentioned, with uh, Meta's implementation of threads uh, as, of, as of late, um, Threads actually isn't operating within the European Union as of right now um, because of the the tensions that it may have with um, violating different uh, regulations that the EU does mm. have. Um, for example, you can't necessarily, at least last I saw, um, you can't cancel a Threads account unless you also cancel your Instagram account. Um, and so by policy, that goes in contrast to uh, U.S. policy versus um, other types of policies. And so it's very possible that we may see what some of those regulations look like in, in other spaces like the EU um, that has actually engaged in pushing back against some mm-hmm. of these larger social media companies, particularly Meta. Earlier, you also mentioned um, pre-bunking or debunking campaigns as as one way to fight back. Um, I suppose this comes from activists and, and from governments as well. Um, that doesn't run into the same sorts of First Amendment right. problems. What does a good pre-bunking campaign look like? Does this stuff actually work? Yeah, so there, there are some, uh, from the information inoculation and pre-bunking, um, they're you know pulling language from vaccines um, with the hope that it would do something very similar to what vaccines do. Um, to kind of insulate or inoculate folks from bad information, from misinformation and, and conspiracy beliefs. There has been some successful effects. Um, there are some pre-bunking interventions uh, that do reduce susceptibility to mi- uh, misinformation across cultures. Um, the Harvard Kennedy School Misinformation Review has published a, a couple of pieces that, that does show that this can happen. Um, but again, it can be really complex with what types of corrections work and what types of corrections don't work, um, whether or not it leads folks to engage in, in this backfire effect and double down, or if it can actually keep folks ahead of the misinformation and give them good information. Because typically what happens is the information that we get first is the information that's the most sticky. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard to undo that prior information because it's just so sticky, even if it's bad information. Um, and there are a couple of uh, games so um, that some folks have, have developed. So um, I think it's it's Rosenbeek, Vanderlinden, and, and Nigren that have developed a game um, that's been used for for pre-bunking and essentially what it is is it teaches folks it's it's a really fun game um, and it teaches folks how to identify you actually go in with the goal of becoming a troll 
of trying to oh. share misinformation and to get yourself to become viral, essentially. And so in doing that, you earn badges to learn how to navigate this and the tools of the trade that not only um, AI spaces are using, because we can now automate this, um, but the ways that folks who are intending to mislead folks with that information, how they operate through the social media space, the way that the influencers and, and elites have, have been able to share, share and, and spread misinformation and conspiracy theories. Okay, so what you've just said then is something that we can do as individuals to to kind of inoculate ourselves, kind of like lifting weights a little bit or taking short hikes before I go on a long hike, uh, getting yourself in condition, as it were. But I have a kind of a secondary question. For for decades, I've had to listen to people tell me that they were immune to advertising. Oh, it doesn't affect me. Oh, no. goodness. <laughs> Do we have the same problem with misinformation and disinformation? Is some of it so sneaky and subtle that we aren't consciously aware of it? Yes, and that <laughs> denialism can make it worse because that means that they're not paying attention to it, that they're not conscious of it. And we are all absolutely subject to or, or vulnerable to misinformation and conspiracy theories if it lines up with a prior belief that we hold. Um, this is a, a fundamental dimension of, of directional motivated reasoning that psychologists have, have shown for, for decades um, that we are, are just likely to believe stuff that aligns with what we like or what we believe. So why do we have a favorite toothpaste brand that has been entrenched in us and whether that's from a socialization perspective or a commercial that we just absolutely loved that had someone that we had an influencer, an actor, actress, athlete who we just loved. They were like, oh, they like that. They use that. I'll use it. But I'm immune to to marketing. <laughs> we're, we're all subject to it, whether we realize it or not. And the tension there then is that we need to be more critical consumers of information and, and more critical, more thoughtful about the way that we are taking in and using that information. Yeah. What you what you talked about is sometimes called anchoring and it's why Microsoft yeah. or I mean it's why Apple gave a whole bunch of computers to high schools back in the day because they <laughs> wanted them to anchor on the uh, Apple operating system. Okay. It worked on me. I'm an Apple <laughs> consumer. Yeah, it, oh, it worked. Yeah. It worked. It worked. <laughs> okay, well, I have I'd like to end our our sessions with kind of a fun question. So, is there a movie other than maybe The Social Dilemma? that you think can entertain and educate our listeners? Oh, goodness. There there are some um, good documentaries um, on kind of broad conspiracy theories that have come up and, and conspiracies that have come up. Um, but so it, Netflix's uh, QAnon documentary is is really interesting um, that if folks uh, are, are open to it. But as I'll say with any of these, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, all of these things typically are, are structured with a, a message tied to them. And so um, being thoughtful or, or skeptical in and of itself. Um, let's see. Um, I have my students actually watch uh, another documentary on, on Netflix called What the Help um, to get them to see how wild um, information can be in the dramatization, um, as well as the manipulation of academic and peer-reviewed information, um, how powerful that can be um, to sway people um, where, where uh, really good academic and, and scientific medical research can be used to create and frame a particular argument. Um, and so, again, being really thoughtful, it's very dramatic. Um, and so again, grain of salt, um, other, other stuff that, you know, that's just entertaining anything from X-Files to enemy of the state to, um, and I mean, incredibly dramatized, uh, don't look up. Right. So th there are all sorts of different types of, of, um, films because we also as humans are, are interested and entertained by, oh, there might be a conspiracy here. What, what's happening? 
Um, yeah, so the, it's it's certainly uh, one of Hollywood's favorite, uh, I won't call it a trope, but um, they do like to use some conspiracy uh, Manchurian candidate, right? Um, yeah, exactly. That, that could that could entertain folks. It, it's a it's a trope, that, as you said, that they like to use. It, it creates good drama and lets them create a movie. So, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, but this is where we must end our program today. Uh, Christina Farrard, thank you for taking the time to be part of public policy this week. Professor Farhart, I too want to thank you for being on the program today and sharing your knowledge and your research. Um, one minute, any parting thoughts for our listeners? First of all, I'll just thank you both so much and, and certainly Rich Larson um, hanging out in the background. Uh, thank you for, for hosting and, and having me today and for the, the flexibility. Um, I think the, the last parting thought is just we have to be, until there are bigger movers or bigger policy levers that can be pulled, um, we have to be more critical consumers of information mm -hmm. and just more thoughtful about our information environment, the types of information, and also being willing to not jump to conclusions or, or pass judgment on others, trying to seek to understand where folks are coming from, what type of information are they using, how did they come to that conclusion, and really thinking about civility and understanding before judgment and dismissal. Um, I think we've come to, to a place where things have become so polarized that even as we have to become more critical consumers of information, um, it, because it takes so much energy and attention to try to understand where others are coming from that we tend to not do it as frequently. And so last parting thought, try to attempt to <laughs> um, seek to understand where others of, of differing perspectives are coming from um, as we come into our, our next, uh, and it's going to, it's going to get wild and crazy again as we head into the 2024 presidential election. But Thank you so much for, for having me today. I really enjoyed my conversation with you, too. Thank you very much. Uh, the objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, every Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the broadcast of each program on the KYMN website, or any of your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week logo. And be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Our guest is Sean Riley, a guest we've had on before. He was head of the IT for North Dakota when we had him on. And we'll be following up on some of the issues raised in today's shows as we dive into artificial intelligence. Do not want to miss that one? Have a great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.